kind of fun to to hear Jesus paid it all, Amen. and to hear some people saying the right words. And, uh, <laughs> some of you not so much. <laughs> Jesus paid it all, all for me, I know. I am no debtor. And I praise God for that. And I'm not saying the hymn writer was wrong, it's just that they were wrong. So, um, anyway. Anyway. Um, on a little bit more grave note this morning, I want to start, I want to ask you a, a very sobering, serious question. And, and I mean that, so it's, I'm not going to backdoor you here with a joke. Uh, what in your life, who in your life, are you willing to die for? Now, again, we kind of throw that around in our culture, and if you really love somebody, you'll die for them. And uh, if you saw um, Inside Out, the uh, Disney Pixar movie, the ideal boy that the little girl had in her head was a, little, was a young teenage boy who was saying, I would die for Riley. And so that, that's the epitome of love, right? <clears throat> you, would, you would die for somebody. You, you'd lay your life down for them. But what is it? Who is it in your life that you would literally die for? And I, I would guess that's a pretty short list because that's a really, really big deal. We're all geared and wired for self-preservation, aren't we? Survival is in our instincts. Fight, flight, or freeze protects us, right? So who would you literally lay your life down for? Who would you step in front of a bullet for? Who would you push out of the way of a rushing bus or something and take their place? What are you, who are you willing to die for? It's a tough question. But it is one worth thoughtful consideration, especially in light of what we are called to be as Christians in a world that has always been and will always be hostile toward us. Are there doctrines you would die for? Would you die for the truth of the Scripture? It's a lot of stuff to think about. And I want, that's, where I, that's how I want to set the table for us this morning. The other part of that is, have you ever been in a life or death situation? Some of you folks were in combat. And your decisions determined whether people lived or died, including yourself. Those of us who have not been in those situations, it's kind of hard to fathom. Making a decision that will determine if somebody, including yourself maybe, lives or dies. I'm 44. I don't know that I've ever made a decision as such. don't know if I ever want to, truthfully. But maybe one day I'll be called to make that decision. And life on the line based on a decision you had to make in the moment. I'm sure it's one thing to say something along these lines and, and say, this is what I would do in that situation, but it's an altogether, completely different thing Amen. to actually carry it out. I think of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, German theologian during World War II, who was part of a plan to assassinate Hitler from inside of Germany. They actually got him to America so that he would be safe, and he decided... It was not right for him to live in safety in America when his brothers were dying in Germany. 
So he willingly returned to Germany and joined in on the plot to assassinate Hitler. They tried it. The bomb went off. It didn't kill Hitler. And they found him out and said, you were part of this plot. And they put him in jail to be executed. And he was executed. And three weeks later, the war ended. He laid his life down. He decided he was going to try to end Hitler's life. And then when it didn't work, he laid his own life down. Those are sobering decisions. And we find just such a decision in our passage today. Esther chapter 4. We will, by the grace of God, finish all of chapter 4 today. And we're going to see just such a decision. We stand when we read the Bible because we respect the God of the Bible and the Bible that God has given us. These are the very words of God. So we stand in awe and respect. Esther chapter 4. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city and he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. And in every province, whether the king's command and his de- wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting and weeping and lamenting, and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. When Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told her, the queen was deeply distressed. She sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther called for Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs who had been appointed to attend her and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what this was and why it was. Hathak went out to Mordecai in the gate square of the city in front of the king... I'm sorry. Hathak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate and Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her and command her to go to the king to beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. And Hathak went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. Then Esther spoke to Hathak and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, All the king's servants and all the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law, to be put to death except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come in to the king these thirty days. And they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows? whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa, and hold a fast on my behalf, and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. Let's pray. God, most of the decisions that we make in our lives, we think, are not very serious. But we saw last week, God, that they all have consequences. This week, show us the graveness of the big decisions and 
Give us grace by the power of your Holy Spirit to understand what action needs to take place and how we should carry it out. Help us to understand your word. Help us to live out your word by the power of your spirit. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you. Wow. And looking over this passage for this week, (laughs) it's like I've known what I wanted to say the whole week, and I just couldn't get it out. I'm thinking, how do you how do you portray this? How do you how do you say this? You got you got these two monumental lines that are in this passage. Who knows whether or not you've come to the kingdom for such a time as this? And then if I perish, I perish. And to present to a group of people the graveness of a life or death question situation. It's pretty overwhelming. We're going to look at verses 1 through, one through 3 first. 1 through 3 first. And we'll work our way through the passage. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city and he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate for... No one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. And in every province, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting and weeping and lamenting. And many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. So if you'll remember, if you, well, if you weren't here, and some of you weren't, of course, because you're just back this week, we've been working through the book of Esther. And where we left Esther last week was Haman, who is the enemy of Mordecai who has proclaimed himself to be enemy of the Jews and the king Ahasuerus who was also King Xerxes. Xerxes was his Greek name. We left Haman and Xerxes sitting on their thrones kicking back on some bubbly after having just issued an edict in the king's name to destroy, kill, and annihilate every Jew in Persia. And Haman had done this because Mordecai, the Jew, would not bow down to him in the gate when he saw him. So he said, I'm not just going to get Mordecai. I'm going to kill every person in his bloodline. And then after they destroyed, killed, and annihilated the Jews, they were then to plunder their goods afterward. And they sent out an edict throughout the provinces. And and Xerxes' kingdom reached from Africa to India. And this edict was going out and coming into every town and it was telling the people of these provinces and towns, there's coming a time in 11 months, because Haman had determined by casting lots, throwing dice, that the lucky day to kill the Jews was in the last month of the year. And he started in the first month of the year. So in 11 months, prepare all through the provinces to find Jews and kill them. And they were leaving that to the people of the provinces. So amazing. So of course the edict was issued in Susa first, which is where we're, the setting of our story is. And it says the whole city was thrown into confusion. And somewhere in Susa, Mordecai catches wind of what has just happened. Now imagine. What's all the hubbub? What's going on? What, what are they hammering up there? What's, what, what does that say? And it says in 11 months, everybody get ready to kill all the Jews in Susa and throughout the whole kingdom. And he reacted... Mordecai did, as would be common in that day, to news that brought grief. He tore his clothes. He covered himself in sackcloth. Think a gunny sack or an old potato sack, real scratchy, burlapish fabric. He covered himself with sackcloth and ashes, which is what people did when they were in grief or were mourning. 
It was a public show of grief and anguish. Then it says that he, Mordecai, went into the middle of the city and cried out with a loud and bitter cry. Anybody ever cried out with a loud and bitter cry? When you were just so overwhelmed with grief that all you can do is just cry out, moaning. That's where Mordecai is at this point. Have you ever been there? Because we need to catch the emotion of this. This is not just some fairy tale where something bad is about to happen to somebody. This is a real-life proclamation that you and all your people are going to die in 11 months. Mordecai tears his clothes, puts on sackcloth and ashes, and goes into the middle of the city, and he cries out in despair. And then he went to the place where he had wielded power and influence before, which was the king's gate. But here, now, in the king's gate, he was powerless. And he could not go into the gate because he was publicly mourning, and there was to be no mourning in the king's presence. The king was about partying and revelry and success and winning and thrones and drinks. No place for mourning or sackcloth or ashes there. Those wearing masks of success and false joy can't stand for real life intruding upon them. And verse 3 says, As the edict spread throughout the provinces, Mordecai's kinsmen mimicked him in their public grief, the Jews, and they fasted, wept, lamented, and many lay in sackcloth and ashes. Now let me ask you a question. How would you react? CNN, Fox News posting in 11 months this group of people, Appalachian Americans, I don't know, are to be killed, exterminated. Shock, disbelief. What's the matter with us? Why us? Because why? Why, why the Jews? I mean, they, they had no reason to think. They weren't starting an uprising and maybe they're thinking, oh, something's going on back in Jerusalem. Those folks that went back to Jerusalem that we left in Ezra, Right? I bet they've started a rebellion or something, so they're just going to kill us all. All they know is that in 11 months they're going to die at the king's command. (laughs) What would you do if you heard that your people, your race, would be killed in 11 months under the direct order of the ruler of the land? Now it's interesting to me that now, after three chapters of seeming lukewarmness and blending in, when things get serious and when things aren't in celebration time anymore... Religious duties are taken up, right? Fasting. Now these Jews who we've seen do nothing religious to this point. Actually, Mordecai told Esther not to reveal that she was a Jew. Blend in. Don't make any noise. Just just go do what you should do to be queen. But now things get tough. And what happens? Then we get religious, right? Now listen, don't be too hard on Mordecai and Esther and the rest of the Jews. I'm the same way. It's actually kind of encouraging to me that the heroes of this story are people who were just blending in. People who were just living their lives. Gives me hope. And fasting certainly implies that there was prayer taking place. Um, It doesn't say that specifically, but you fast in order to pray. That's really what you're doing. This is not a hunger strike. Or a protest, this is calling out to God saying, Oh, God, help us. Now the Jews were only commanded to fast in the law once a year on the Day of Atonement when it says they were to afflict themselves and present an offering to God for their sins. And again, while Esther does not mention God or prayer in the whole book, 
it would certainly make sense that they weren't just not eating, but were in conjunction with the fast calling out to God for deliverance. And I wonder, this is something that I wonder, if Mordecai is repenting of his pride, his his stubbornness and not bowing to Haman, because he knows what's going on now. He knows that Haman has issued this edict. He knows that it was Haman that did it, and he's got to be thinking, is this my fault? Did I bring this on us? And we'll see in a few minutes that he has written strictly in the edict that Haman wrote and and he found out how much money was given by Haman to the king. So he knows what's going on. And probably from his contacts in the palace, he heard that Haman was the mastermind of the whole deal. So that's where we find Mordecai. Sackcloth, ashes, public mourning, near the king's gate, can't go any further. But what about Esther? What does she know? Where is she? Verses 4 and 5. When Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told her, told her that Mordecai was doing what he was doing, the queen was deeply distressed. She sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther called for Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs, who had been appointed to attend her, and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what this was and why it was. So Esther is in the house of the women doing queenish things. She doesn't know about the edict. As the queen, she has young women and eunuchs to attend her. And these attendants must have seen Mordecai or heard what was going on. Some, some weird guys down in the gate and sackcloth and ashes said, that's Mordecai. And they came and told Esther what they knew. And it seems that they knew that Mordecai was in the king's gate and sackcloth and ashes refusing to be comforted. And then it says, Esther was deeply distressed. Now there are no signs of them, Esther and Mordecai, having any other family, so she wouldn't have assumed that somebody had died. So she was puzzled, distressed, not sure of what was going on. So she sent some clothes to Mordecai so that he could change and then be able to come into the king's gate and then they could communicate. But he refused to be comforted. He refused to act like things were all right in royal clothes. Wow, I like this guy all of a sudden. He's not going to put on his fancy clothes and act like everything's all right on Sunday morning. Now notice something. I want you to notice something. Something changed here. Esther's given commands now. She's the one saying, you do this, you do that. She is being queenly, queenish. She's being authoritative. But she obviously has no idea about the edict. She's not in the know that much. She's doing her queenly things in the house of the women and commanding those around her who she can command. So her eunuch goes. And what does he find? Verses 6 through 8. Hathak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate, and Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her and command her to go to the king to beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. So, if Hathak had any questions or wondered if he'd be able to find anything out, he finds pretty quickly that would not be an issue. Mordecai opens up right away. No veiled, I don't really feel like talking about it type stuff here. That's weird to me that it says Mordecai told him all that had happened to him. And everything that I researched, I couldn't find anything that addressed this. Why is it him? Why is it so personal? Um, one thing that it could be, Mordecai could kind of like be a type a, or a portent 
of the rest of the Jewish nation. So what's happening to him is happening to them. I don't know. It's kind of like what happened to him is very personal, but yet it's also public and communal. I don't know. Anyway, he's very detailed on what was going on, even producing the very sum of money promised by Haman to the king. And then he even had a written copy of the edict. So this guy wasn't acting on hearsay. This guy didn't have the National Enquirer where he heard a rumor that something crazy was going to happen. He had the edict himself. Now let me just say something quickly that we're not going to address in the rest of the message. If you're going to talk about big deals, have your facts straight. Okay? If you're going to have... We talked Friday here with the youth about details and having the right details. And if you don't have the right details, you probably don't need to be talking about what you're talking about. Mordecai... What's a kumquat? I don't know. Where's, where's Becca? <laughs> Sorry, Becca. Um, um, anywho, Mordecai had the facts. And somehow he had found out how much money Haman was going to give to the king. He had a written form of the edict. He said, you go back and you tell Esther this. He's not acting out of control based on some rumors. He was well connected and had the details to give to Esther about it all. And it was his goal to get this to Esther and command her. Now he's commanded her up to this point, right? He's told her what to do, what not to do, how to act, how not to act. So he's commanding her to go to the very king who had issued the edict and intercede for the people of Mordecai and, yes, the people of Esther. But nobody knew that yet, did they? That these Jews were the people of Esther. Verses 9-11. through And Hathak went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. Then Esther spoke to Hathak and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say... All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come into the king these 30 days. So here we are, chapter 4, verse 10. We finally hear Esther speak. Up to this point, we haven't heard her say anything. We've heard about her doing things and going in and going out. But here we have Esther's words recorded for the first time. And what does she do? She speaks. She commands. She might even get a little condescending here toward her uncle who's telling her what to do now. She was quick to point out that this was very dangerous for her. Go to the king, intercede. And she's like, whoa, 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 time out. She says, everybody knows. Everybody, that if you go to the king without being called, there were literally guards standing there who would separate your head from your body if you weren't invited. And if he didn't extend the golden scepter and say, it's okay that they're here. So to walk into the presence of the king was to take your life in your own hands. And it's put in the hands of this six-month party-throwing, virgin-seeking, pleasure-seeking moody king guy. Not a good career move to stroll into the presence of the king. Esther's saying, everybody knows that I could die if I do this. It's kind of like she's saying, come on Mordecai, everybody knows this. You're saying it kind of, no big deal, Go, go talk to the king. And this was common practice in most kingdoms of those days. The king didn't let anyone just stroll into his presence without consequences. Think about that with God for a minute. We stroll into his presence. 
cavalier. Here I am, God. Congratulations, I showed up today. But he does love us. Thank God. But these kings didn't just let anybody stroll in. Think secret service men with axes or swords standing around, okay? This was for the king's protection and for his pleasure. I think he kind of liked it. I think you kind of would like it too, sitting there like, ain't nobody going to mess with me. They walk in that door, Okay, haul them out, they're dead. And Esther points out that it's been 30 days since she had been called into the king's presence. Now, they've been married a few years now, by now, in our story. But it's been 30 days since she's been called into the king's presence. And she didn't dare just go in there, Hey, what's up, guy? How you doing? It's not how it works. Who knows what kind of mood this guy might be in? You don't know. Who knows what he might do? She was surely all too familiar with the truth that Xerxes didn't deal too kindly with insubordinate women, right? She was queen because Vashti had been insubordinate. So Esther's first recorded words are fraught with despair, fear, and a self-preserving attitude. To this point of the narrative, she has been completely obedient to Mordecai. Now she shows a little bit more of her own opinion. And it's quite simply... I'd prefer not to die if that's okay with you. But was it okay with Mordecai? Let's find out. 12 through 14. And they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows? whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Wow. He kind of laid it down for her, didn't he? They tell Mordecai what Esther had said, and Mordecai says in return, well, that's completely understandable, understandable, cuz, good idea, keep yourself safe. Just like I taught you when I said not to tell anyone you were a Jew. Well, that's not exactly what he says. (laughs) He says, in essence, you think you're safe? You think you can save your own life? Well, it ain't so, queen. He says quite plainly, don't think for a second that being the queen and living in the palace is going to save you. He lets her know that all the Jews were going to die and that included her if this edict was carried out. Just because they don't know you're a Jew now won't save you ultimately. And not just that, but... If you keep silent, something else, someone else will step in and the Jews will be saved even if Esther dies. Now, whoa, whoa, whoa. Where did that come from? That's a statement of faith. How could he be so sure? Don read this morning about a man named Abram, about a man named Abraham. And God made some promises to this man named Abraham. And he said, Your descendants I make a covenant with throughout eternity. Now, Persia exists in eternity. Past Persia extends out into eternity. We're living in eternity, actually. So God's made this eternal promise to this man named Abraham who was the father of the Jews. Father Abraham had many sons, right? Let's just praise the Lord. Okay. (laughs) He had many sons from one barren woman was given the child of promise and then boom, 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 bo
And Mordecai reaches back to that promise here. Now here's a man who grew up hearing about Father Abraham. He was a Jew. Okay, Again, he's not showing really much external Jewishness, but those stories are there. He knows the truth. And he says, listen, Esther, God made a promise. He doesn't say this because, again, God's name's not mentioned in the book. But he's like, deliverance is going to come for these people some way. Why? Because they're God's people and God has made an eternal covenant with them. And if you don't act, deliverance will come from somewhere else. So all of a sudden, this guy, Mordecai, who's just fit in, who's been in the halls of power, who's doing well for himself in Persia, all of a sudden remembers his religious roots. All of a sudden remembers the promises of God. And he knew that the promises made to Abraham were made by God himself and God cannot break these promises. So what Mordecai is ultimately saying is there's no way that all the Jews in the world could be killed and thus be extinct. God's plans for His people would last well beyond Persia and Xerxes and Haman and Esther and Mordecai. And without saying it specifically, Mordecai was saying God will deliver His people some way, somehow, through someone. Relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. And then this line, And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. And you want to talk about providence epitomized. Here it is. Mordecai says, Wait a second. Wait just a second. Bing, 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 bing. And facts start to line up and things start to pop in his head. And he's going, This is all... This is all for a reason. Vashti was insubordinate for a reason. Xerxes called for a new queen for a reason. I told Esther not to tell everybody she was Jewish for a reason. That's kind of tricky. Esther became queen for a reason. Providence. Providence. And Esther is in the halls of power in the very seat of power next to a king. And who knows, Mordecai says, maybe all of this happened for this very reason. Maybe the gears of the cosmos are being shifted by someone, capital S, who knew that we wouldn't be back in Jerusalem. Someone who knew that if there were a Jewish woman who was queen, maybe, just maybe, this Jewish queen could have become queen for just such a time as this. Maybe, just maybe. (laughs) And I think we really see a giant leap in Mordecai's life right here. I've been kind of hard on him up to this point, but I think rightfully so. But here, in this time of trauma and fear, he starts to see things not just from an earthly perspective, but starts looking into the past and God's promises there, and that gives him a different, clearer perspective for the disaster in front of him presently. Up to now, we haven't seen him do anything remotely spiritual, but here we surely do. Fear, trauma, the threat of death, they sure do have a way of helping us draw near to the only one who can help us, don't they? So, Esther, ball's in your court. How will she respond? Will she respond like Mordecai in a positive trajectory, or will she remain convinced of her safety and clinging to her comfort in the palace. Verses 15 through 17. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa, and hold a fast on my behalf, 
and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. So now Esther replies, how would she respond to all of this? And it is a lot to respond to. My question is, where in the world did this come from? Who is this person? Who is this lady? Because I haven't seen her previously in this book. Just a few verses ago, this same lady was reminding her grieving cousin that if she did what he suggested, that she could be killed. And now this, Esther, Queen Esther, sent back the reply, Let's fast for three days, me and my young women, and you and all the Jews in Susa. And again, fasting implies at least some kind of prayer accompanying it. So let's fast for three days, devoting ourselves to being somber and seeking help in this perilous time. Now, for real, can you, can you imagine every Jew in Susa? I don't know how many it was. It's more than four, I would think. Every Jew in Susa and the queen and her women and eunuchs for three days and three nights not eating or drinking anything. Let me tell you, there is power in corporate agreement and participation. God honors this today. And Esther said to do it, why? For her, on her behalf. Do not eat or drink, engage in intercession in hopes that I won't die when I go before the king. That's the point here. Even then, she doesn't have any promise of deliverance if she's not killed. She doesn't have a plan, anything to say. She just wants to get through this one event and hopes that her head is still on her shoulders after she talks to the king. So three days and nights, don't eat, don't drink, I won't do the same, and then I'll go into the king's presence. And it's against the law for me to do this. You fast, will fast, I'll go. And if I perish... I perish. Resolute. No turning back. No surety of outcome. But I will do it come what may, including death. Wow. Now we spoke earlier of the positive development in Mordecai's character, and we see it here in Esther too. Now it took almost four full chapters. But here we see a heroine. Not a self-serving pretty face. I'll do what only I can do. And if I die, I die. (laughs) Wow. Now we see why she's the heroine in this story. Before I didn't see it. But something changed, y'all. It's funny how a life and death situation can bring some clarity and develop a backbone in people. And we see in verse 17 that now it's Mordecai who's following orders. Esther orders Mordecai. And he says, okay, I'll do that. Now Esther has commanded and Mordecai is doing what she says to do. And then, well, join us next week. It's cliffhanger time. We end our passage today and we start to look to application with the fate of Esther and the Jewish people hanging in the balance. And what some application we have from all this. I just couldn't, I couldn't, word it, okay? I'm just going to, I don't have anything 
to help you remember. You're just going to have to listen, okay? Maybe write it down. Heck. The first application point for us from this passage is the inevitability of trials and traumas. Listen to me. The plain and simple fact of the matter is that there will be hardships and trials and tribulations and persecutions in your life. Nobody gets through life without some difficulty. And some of you are sitting here saying, yeah, but I've had more than my fair share. And you're probably right. I don't know why, but I do know this. This is powerful. In the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider. God has made the one as well as the other so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. You got prosperity? God made it. You got adversity? God made it. Why? I don't know. I don't know. I I don't know. But I know this is true. Anybody not had any trouble in your life? Anybody not had any trials or persecutions? Maybe some of you have had those life or death situations. Maybe you've had those traumas that have scarred you and are still bearing this dark shadow over your life. Why? I don't know. I don't know why. But I know that nobody gets through life without some difficulty. God has made both prosperity and adversity. We've seen Mordecai and Esther prosper, and now we see them suffering. And we can't take the stand that God was blessing them when they were prospering and punishing them when they were suffering. God has made one as well as the other. Both instances, both settings are of His doing and He is using them for His eternal purposes. And it's true of all of us, whether we're in halls of power or not. And let me tell you what, if you're seeking to be a solid, vocal, up-front, out-front Christian, it's just going to get worse. Indeed, Paul says to Timothy, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. That doesn't say protected. Why? I don't know. But I do know this. We are called to follow a Savior who it was prophesied about in Isaiah 53, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, He was despised and we esteemed Him not. So if we're going to be like Jesus, which is our goal, right? Who is a better Esther, who is a better Mordecai, if we're going to be like Him, we need to know sorrows. We need to know grief. We need to know what it means to be despised and not esteemed. Rich Mullins said it this way. There's bound to come some trouble to your life, but that ain't nothing to be afraid of. There's bound to come some trouble to your life, but that ain't no reason to fear. I know there's bound to come some trouble to your life, but reach out to Jesus. Hold on tight. He's been there before, and He knows what it's like. You'll find He's there. There's bound to come some tears up in your eyes. That ain't nothing to be ashamed of. 
I know there's bound to come some tears up in your eyes. That ain't no reason to fear. I know there's bound to come some tears up in your eyes. Reach out to Jesus and hold on tight. He's been there before and He knows what it's like. And you'll find He's there. Rich goes on to say, Now people say maybe things will get better. People say maybe it won't be long. And people say maybe you'll wake up tomorrow and it'll all be gone. Well, I only know that maybes just ain't enough when you need something to hold on to. There's only one thing that's clear. I know there's bound to come some trouble to your life. But that ain't nothing to be afraid of. I know there's bound to come some tears up in your eyes. That ain't no reason to fear. I know there's bound to come some trouble to your life. Reach out to Jesus and hold on tight. He's been there before. And He knows what it's like. And you'll find that He's there. I don't know why it's happening to you. But I know that Jesus is there. I know that Jesus was there with Mordecai. Jesus was there with Esther. And in your point of trauma, in your point of trial, in your point of despair, reach out to Jesus. And that's not some pie in the sky by and by. It'll be better someday. It's right now. Reach out to Jesus and hold on tight. He's been there before and He knows what it's like. And you'll find He's So trials and sufferings are coming. They're inevitable. But why? Second application point is this. The value of trials. Is God just mean and cruel and hoping to watch us squirm? Was God just sitting up in heaven saying, let's see what Mordecai and Esther do? Jerks, they're just trying to fit in down there. Nope, not at all. Was he mad at the Jewish people? Well, yeah, he was a little but that's not what's going on here. The truth of it all is that when we are doing well, when things are good, we forget God. Moses warned the Israelites about this when they were about to cross over into the Promised Land in Deuteronomy 8. Take care lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping His commandments and His rules and His statutes, which I command you today, lest when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them, and when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart will be lifted up and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Had Esther and Mordecai forgotten the Lord their God? Maybe Maybe to fit in and to do well, they were just going along to get along and they kind of liked it. Things were going well. And listen to me, church. When things are going well, we forget God. All's at ease in Zion, right? So here come the Babylonians and they take us captive. And the Persians overtake the Babylonians and now we're serving the Persians. You know what? We kind of like the Persians. And God says, don't like the Persians. Don't get comfortable in Persia. I want you for myself and I want you to know the joy of fellowship with me even if it means hardship. Don't let your heart get lifted up and forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery. When things are easy peasy, we just run the risk of forgetting God, y'all. But when trials come, we are much more prone to run to Him, even if it is to question or maybe even accuse Him sometimes. We tend to reach out to Jesus when the troubles come. And that's a good thing. 
But that's not all. Listen, there's a purpose higher than we can see in the moment. 1 Peter 1, 6-7 In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. There is an eternal purpose in your trials. And it's a good thing. It's praise and glory and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. You look back on that trial and you say, praise you Jesus because you were there. Praise you Jesus because you were faithful. And if you were faithful, you are faithful. And if you are faithful, you will forever be faithful. All praise and honor and glory to you who is worthy to open up the scroll. So your trials have a purpose, and it's a really good thing. Peter doesn't stop there, though. First, chapter 4, verses 12 through 16. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. He didn't say if, as though something strange were happening to you. Oh, no! But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. Man, that sounds just like what we just read. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed because the Spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Now stop a second. Do you want the Spirit of glory and of God to rest upon you? Well, when you're insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. When things are hard... But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Suffering serves to glorify God in our lives. Suffering is inevitable and suffering leads to God's glory. You say, well, I'd rather not glorify God in that way. You don't really have a choice if you're a Christian. You just don't. And are we not called to follow a Savior? Hebrews 12, 1-3 Therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. And what kind of Savior are we following? Looking to Jesus the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider Him who endured from sinners such hostility against Himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. You want to be like Jesus? Suffer. And suffer knowing that joy is placed before you as you go through the suffering faithful. And suffering produces glory. That's why Jesus endured the cross, despising the shame. Because He knew there was a joy set before Him, which was His glorification, which was the glorification of God. So sufferings are inevitable. Sufferings lead to the glory of God. That's the first two. We've got two more application points. The third application point is really kind of unrelated. And I just want to call our attention to the power of corporate life. I don't need the church, people say. I've been hurt by the church, people say. I can worship Jesus in the woods, people say. What are you going to do when the trials come? 
Who are you going to fall back on? Who are you going to cry out to for help and deliverance and prayer and support? You don't have anybody. Esther called on all the Jews in Susa to fast on her behalf. Now this didn't guarantee her success, but it helped fortify her in her resolve to do what she knew had to be done. Had she had any contact with these Jewish people prior to this? She certainly hadn't while she'd been in the palace. How Jewish was she in the Jewish community before that? Don't know. But when times got tough, when life and death came looking at her in the face, she called out to a corporate group of people and said, Fast for me. Petition for me that I might do what I need to do. She drew strength from the corporate life of the Jewish people in Susa to help her do what she needed to do. Listen to me, church. Listen to me, individual Christian. You cannot make it out there if you're not rooted and grounded in here amongst the people of God. You can't do it. You're going to blend in. You're going to fail. You're going to fall. You're you're going to become worldly. And when trials come, you're going to wilt. But when trials come and you run to the people of God and say, I don't know what to do. Please help me. Please support me. And they open up their arms and they support and encourage and do what they need to do to help you through. Wow. Most of you don't remember everything that happened with Lily four years ago now. It was crazy. I missed two and a half weeks of work while procedures and biopsies and all this jazz was going on. Let me tell you what. I didn't miss a bill. And it was these people that was largely responsible for that. If I didn't have the church at that time, I, I don't know what I'd have done. Now, the church didn't fix all our problems. But the church was praying, the church was supporting, the church was communicating, and the church was assuring us, we'll do whatever needs to be done. You focus on what's going on in Cincinnati. And we did. I don't know. I don't understand why people would shirk corporate life. I don't get it. Well, what we have as the church, not just Providence Bible Church, but the church universal, is a beautiful, powerful thing. The power of corporate life is given to people who are plugged into corporate life. And does not Hebrew say, Forsake not the assembling of yourselves together as is the practice of some. I know people. I'm a a Christian, but I don't need the church. Sorry, you're wrong. I pray every day. I know Jesus. Me and Jesus got our own thing going. We don't need anybody to tell us what it's all about. What vain, foolhardy, arrogant words those are. We are made to live in community with each other and to draw on the strength and support of others when we are in our times of suffering and trials. The inevitability of suffering. Suffering produces glory. The power of corporate life. And finally, listen to me. I want to sum everything we've said today up in this last application point. The last application point is this. Christianity is about Losing your life. That's the point. 
I mentioned Bonhoeffer earlier. Bonhoeffer said this, When Christ calls a man, He bids him come and die. He's like, what, what, what about eternal life? We'll get there. Are we not called to follow a Savior whose very purpose in being born as a human being was to die? If Jesus had not died, you're still in your sins, people. If Jesus had not died, but it just went back up to heaven, Christianity is a lie. It's a sham. It's false. So if I'm going to be like Jesus, I march to my death. And that's literally and figuratively. Ultimately, and as I go along the way. We are called to become like the one who took on human form for the express purpose of dying. Listen to these words. Jesus Himself. Then Jesus told His disciples, if you're a disciple of Jesus, listen... If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? What if Esther had been silent, nobody ever found out she was Jewish, and every Jew in the world gets wiped off the face of the planet because of her silence. What would it have profited her? But, but, but dying? If you want to be a disciple, the call is to deny yourself, take up your cross, which is the implement of death, and follow Jesus. The reason we don't follow Jesus in certain situations when sin is in our face, when we've got to make these life or death situations, the reason we don't follow Jesus is because we don't deny ourselves. Esther got to this point of crisis and said, I will deny myself. And if I perish, I perish. I don't, I don't know what kind of Christianity we're peddling in America anymore. But I don't know that it's this. And it should be this. God loves you and He wants you to be happy. God loves you and He wants you to be happy, but He wants you to be happy in Him. What is our only hope in life and death? That I belong body and soul to Jesus Christ. What is our only hope in life and death that maybe I'll get that promotion? Our only hope in life and death is that maybe I'll get married and have some kids. Our only hope in life and death is that I can retire next year. What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? We need to preach a gospel of death. You say, why do I say that? Because there's a bigger purpose. Jesus is our example, finally. Philippians 2. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though He was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied Himself. 
denied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Is this the type of Christianity that we're preaching to ourselves and to the people around us? You say, well, that doesn't sound very exciting. That doesn't sound like abundant life. If any man wants to be my disciple, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. Because being obedient to the point of death, death is not the ultimate goal. Death is a means to an end. Therefore God has highly exalted him, since he was obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There's a bigger purpose, there's a bigger reason than just dying. Esther said, if I die, I die. Which is alright, but it's not quite enough. Because the reason for our resolve, the reason for Jesus' resolve to look death in the face and say, no thanks, not afraid of you, was because we knew, He knew that resurrection was coming. He knew the faithfulness of God that if He sacrificed Himself, if He laid His life down, that God would highly exalt Him. That was the joy set before Him. So He endured the cross. So listen to me, Christian. When the decision comes, whether it's life or death or not, Maybe it's clicking that computer mouse. Maybe it's eating something you know you shouldn't eat. Maybe it's choosing to drive over the speed limit. Maybe it's choosing a spouse. Maybe it's a thousand million trillion different things. If the step, the first step is not deny yourself, take up your cross and follow Jesus, you're going to choose what you want to do. And that self-indulgence, that self-fulfillment, self-gratification. And what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? There's a greater purpose. You were created for the sole purpose of glorifying God. And you cannot glorify God if you do not die to yourself. But if you do die to yourself, God has promised something greater. He has promised you resurrection life. He has promised you an overcoming life that steps over all of this stuff, looks death in the face and laughs and says, Oh, death, where is your sting? In the Christian life, death precedes life. You will not know abundant life until you die to yourself. So make that decision that Esther made. If I die, I die. And when I die, I get resurrection life. And that glorifies God. And that is why I live on after I die. Death precedes life. Unless a grain of wheat falls to the earth and dies, it remains by itself alone. But if it dies, it produces fruit. And Jesus said, this is the reason that I came. If I die, I die. And if I die... I live again. And I have abundant life. Let's pray. Jesus, I know, trust and believe that when you called me, you bid me to come and die. And that's not a bad thing. 
You bid me to come and die to myself and my wants and my desires and my control and my manipulation so that I could trust you. So that deliverance would come from you, not from Esther, not from me, not from that thing that I think I want so badly. My hope is in you, Jesus. Your life being lived out through me by the power of your Holy Spirit. That's my hope in life and in death. And he who calls us is faithful, is what your word tells us. So may we be faithful to the point of death, even death on a cross, knowing that you will exalt us at the proper time. Sufferings are going to come. Sufferings give you glory, Father. And we can bear those sufferings so well if we're in corporate life together and if we know that you have promised us resurrection life when we lay down our lives, when we deny ourselves, take up our cross and follow Jesus. May we do it by the power of your spirit and in faith in your word, God. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand? Receive a benediction. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. And all God's people said, Amen. Stay and eat with us if you can, please.